Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, welcome to Book Choice on the first Monday of the month and to a bright new bookish new year. I'm Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, with a big bundle of good books on which to spend your book vouchers if you were so lucky to get some. Beverly Rusmuller finds Chris Barnard as beautiful and as brilliant as she remembers him in Heartbreaker, Christian Barnard and the First Heart Transplant, and that's by James Brent Stein. Philip Todras is gobsmacked by Balanesque, the long-awaited retrospective from one of the world's most important photographers, Roger Ballin, who for the first time reveals his compelling and particular vision. Vanessa Levenstein loved Dear World, a Syrian girl's story of war and a a plea for peace by Bana Alabed. John Hanks holds Sir David Attenborough in high esteem and thus was thrilled to read David Attenborough, Adventures Adventures of a Young Naturalist, The Zoo Quest Expeditions. Mike Fitzjames, mean as always, shreds our nerves with truly good crime novels. We chat to Lyndall Gordon about outsiders, five women writers who changed the world, wonderfully written with Lyndall's usual passionate intelligence. Good last from Melvin Minar, who chuckled his way through 50 People Who Stuffed Up the World by Alexander Parker and Tim Richman. Finally, Cindy Moritz is deeply moved by Hunger, and memoir of my body by Roxanne Gay, an American writer, professor, editor, and commentator who addresses the experience of living in what she calls an undisciplined body. And first, here's my review. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. What I thought I'd do for first book review of the year from Wordsworth Books is to go through and talk about what has happened this year or what we're expecting next year. So I put it into various categories. So the most exciting book that came out in the year has to be The President's Keeper. This book has sold over 125,000 copies, which is a huge amount for South Africa. We ran out of stock at one stage. We were fuming and, and foaming at the mouth to try and get stock. And the thing is about the book, I think it's caused huge earthquakes in our political spectrum. Not that there were things in it that no one had not speculated about, but there was evidence and they wanted to ban it and the book reads really well. So I would say that's the most exciting book of the year, The President's Keeper. The book that we should read from last year is the Ramaphosa book by Ray Hartley. This is at 240 Rand. I think Ramaphosa is a person that we think we know, but we actually don't really know. And Ray Hartley goes right into details about who Cyril Ramaphosa is. So that's on my list of books I should read. Now, the surprising bestseller of the year was The Sun and Her Flowers by Rupi Kaur. Now, this is a poetry book. Since when is a poetry has sold so well? This poetry book has sold. It is a beautiful book, and people love it. They are buying it by the handful, and the second book is out as well. So that is a book that I would keep my eyes on. It's a book that we should be reading. Cookbooks. It's been a disappointing year for cookbooks. There's been a lot coming out, but nothing has really caught the public's imagination, apart from the new Ottolenghi. An Ottolenghi cookbook is always a treat, 
And this year he brought out Sweet. It's his first cookbook about desserts. They are fantastic desserts. As usual, the recipes are fairly complicated, but anyone out there who can read a recipe and follow it can make these wonderful puddings. So I would say Sweet Ottolenghi is my cookbook of the year, and I just must mention the new Jamie Oliver. Now, Jamie Oliver, his last few books have been real duds. They haven't worked particularly well. And his new book... Five Ingredients has come out, and that has sold extremely well. It's a really good book. It has come out with the TV series, and people have enjoyed it thoroughly. So I can recommend that, the Jamie Oliver Five Ingredients. And then another book that I found really fascinating on the cookbook side, it's a Dorling Kindersley book called The Science of Cooking. Every question you wanted to know about how you cook, what affects what heat you should cook at, how should you cook vegetables, the science behind what we do with food, what works, what doesn't work, why frying works, where sugar temperatures, all that sort of stuff. It is a fascinating book. The Science of Cooking, every question answered to give you the edge. And that's a Dorling Kindersley book. Right, the best history book that's, that came out this year has got to be Churchill and Smuts by Richard Stein. It is a book about two fascinating characters, a bit of history that we didn't know very well, about two characters that we think we know very well. And it's beautifully written. It's told in a, in a fantastic story-like way. And it's a book that I've enjoyed thoroughly. That's Churchill and Smuts by Richard Stein. I must also mention a few other books here. 50 People Who Stuffed Up the World, Alexander Parker. This is a book that has been a surprising bestseller. We've had the South Africa one, and now we've got the, the worldwide people, and there's no shortage of people to put in there. Short potted biographies, what happened, what they did, why they did what they did. Then let me go on to my best read. What did I read during the year that I really enjoyed? Well, I loved the Philip Pullman, The Book of Dust. It is the first volume of The Book of Dust, which is going to be three, um, three volumes. It's called La Belle Sauvage. And anyone who has read Philip Pullman knows they are beautifully written, simplistically told for such complicated storylines. And they are books that you get your teeth into and you really love. And you love the characters in them. I also discovered this year a thriller author that I really enjoy, Sue Grafton. I'm sure all of you have discovered her before. She does the Alphabet Mysteries, and she's just died, and I started reading back right to A, and A is for Alibi. I love her books, and I love her, uh, her detective. Then the books that we are looking forward to. Well, the first one that's coming, which is going to kick up a storm, is the book about Donald Trump in the White House. It's called Fire and the Fury. And this book is coming out in January. They are doing a special cheap edition for South Africa, so don't go and order it on Amazon because you will end up paying a fortune. It's going to come out at about 360 rand. Put your name down in our bookshops. We're waiting for it. It's due before the end of January. And this is a book that takes the lid off the Trump White House. I can't wait to read it. He's already tried to sue the publishing company and stop publication of the book. Well, that's a way to get sales, as we learned with Jacques Poe. Well, the next person we have uh, to review is Beverly Ruth Muller. 
and she is going to be remembering Chris Barnard. Chris Barnard was easily the most beautiful man I have ever seen. The black and white color photographs taken of, at the time when he became the world's most famous doctor after his first heart transplant in Cape Town in 1967 do not do him justice. He had striking green eyes, golden skin, and sculptured features, and that beauty added to his immense celebrity. Yet it would also cause him and others heartbreak. There was a time when he was easily one of the most recognizable men on the planet. Yet, 50 years on, many of the young people I speak to barely remember him, apart from some dim memory of him being the first surgeon to take the beating heart out of a living person and place it in another. It was a bold, brave, and momentous event, and the reason it has taken so long to arrive was not that there were no other skilled surgeons in the world. There were, and he, a brilliant scholar, had learned from several of them in the USA. But the final no-going-back step needed someone with his drive, his willingness to take calculated risks and pull them off because of his great skill to make medical history. Theatre sister Tolly Lambrechts remembers the moment when Professor Barnard placed his hands inside Louis Washkansky's chest and lifted out his old diseased heart before replacing it with the donor heart of a young woman, Denise Darvel, who had been fatally wounded in a traffic accident. She says the cavity left behind was enormous. This was something few people had ever seen, a person without a heart being kept alive by a machine only eight steps away. I recall as a young journalist traveling into Cape Town by train the morning after that day in December 1967 and seeing out of the window huge headlines shouting of the world's first heart transplant. Barnard had an excellent surgical and support team, including his brother Marius, but he was unquestionably the captain of this event. Importantly, what is sometimes overlooked in all the hullabaloo in his celebrity status is just how good a scientist he was, dedicated and much published. It is a shame that he and the other American heart transplant surgeons who soon followed him were not awarded the Nobel Prize, especially as Barnard's transplant patients had by far the greatest survival rates. Yet the work done by the man with the golden hands, as he was called, ironically these hands were to become crippled with arthritis, was the work he was most proud of was not his first heart transplant, but the hundreds of hours of groundbreaking surgical skill he poured into saving children's lives, operating all day and then often spending night after night at the child's bed. His colleagues recalled that this often meant the difference between life and death for those children. He was born into a family that was not only poor but outcast. His father ministered to the colored community in Beaufort West and only a quarter of the salary of the Dormany of the White Congregation. He and his brothers were mocked and ostracized as children, and he grew up repulsed at color segregation and discrimination, which made his relationship with the apartheid government, keen to cash in on this prized South African, deeply uneasy and even acrimonious.
He loved South Africa deeply, but he hated apartheid, and in his outspoken way was as controversial as he was celebrated. His first and subsequent marriages broke down, at least in part, over his fame and his wild attractiveness to women. Perhaps his most remembered affair was with the beautiful actress, Gina Lollobrigida, but she was far from the only one. Yet he would die, asthmatic and alone, in 2001 while on holiday. To commemorate the 50th anniversary of the first heart transplant, author James Brent Stryan has produced this highly readable and informative book on one of the most remarkable men this country has produced. I approached it a little hesitantly, yet once begun, I could not put it down. Once he was a household name all over the world, and he should be remembered. This book will help refresh his place in history. Heartbreaker is available in English and Afrikaans. Now here's Philip Todras to talk and review the book Ballonesque. Ballonesque, Roger Ballon, a retrospective published by Thames and Hudson, is a really valuable term to have, not at your bedside, it's too heavy for that, but a very impressive look at a very impressive career. It's very good to be speaking to you, Roger. Yeah, great pleasure to speak to you. And just compliments on a book that is much overdue, giving us a sense of the extraordinary depth and range of your work. And I love the fact that as early as 1969, in fact, you published yeah. Boyhood. Oh, boyhood, yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. the idea you always had of books being a primary goal as a photographer. But have you moved away from that? I mean, it was after you went to Colorado School of Mining in 81 that you got your first Rotoflex, and that started a whole new, as you put I needed to use the camera to excavate layers of my inner life. Yeah, so you're right. So, I mean, I think the most important thing about the, the mining um, career, which I really enjoy, the geology exploration, was... I was able to do my photography and my other work at the same time, and most um, people who start as artists don't last beyond 25 or 30 years old because they can't support themselves. So I was involved in a profession that was my business. I was an entrepreneur, and then at the same time I was able to do the pictures, so I had the right uh, balance. And so I was able to continue this photography for years and years and years until became well-known, and in fact, I didn't really sell pictures until I was 50 years old. And in fact, just to get some perspective, you came to South Africa at what age, and how many years were you spending actually examining the South African landscape? As well, I first came to South Africa in 1974. I hitchhiked from Cairo to Cape Town, and so this was a long trip, and I came here and, and uh, found the country quite interesting. I met my future wife, and it was a very good profession to place to work in, in the geological field. And then I left and made a trip from Istanbul to New Guinea by land. It was, you know, this whole trip was nearly five years and did the boyhood book. And then I came back here permanently in 1982. So I've been in Johannesburg for 35 years already. And I love your quote, I found myself among people living in the margins, on the margins in a world bordering on the edge of the mind. Can you perhaps take us through that period of your life? Because you start off by looking just at what I'm going to call, say, people landscapes, and then you went into something more than just that. Yeah, I think all my work, uh, I guess, from the 80s to the present has always been on the edge. I mean, I, I feel as an artist, even as a person, that it's important to take myself to a place, a zone uh, that that's unknown, that's challenging, 
uh, that's reverberating that expands my uh, consciousness. So this has always been, I guess, the subliminal goal of what I, what I do, and that's one of the things that's kept me going for 50 years in photography, that I keep entering these zones, whether they're physical zones or imaginary zones, um, to challenge my state of mind. And this is something that I find really important to do in my short lifetime, as they put it. Well, you're certainly challenging the viewer's mind. Yeah. Like, was another well, one. Is good, too. <laughs> in fact, that's what the book is all about. Yeah, you're right. us to see things in a different way, in different perspectives. And I like, you know, for instance, when you start your, with your portraits, you say, my portraits ceased being portraits in the traditional sense of the word. They reveal the universal circumstances of life. I'm wondering if, in fact, you are now looking at emotional landscapes rather than just the person. Yeah, look, I think I've always, for the last 25, 30 years, it's always been emotional landscapes, archetypal landscapes, ethereal landscapes, rather than just a portrait as a portrait. I ceased really being a documentary photographer with, at the end of Platelon in 94, and then the pictures went into some other place. I started to see myself as an artist photographer beginning in the late 90s and really started to create the so-called Balanest aesthetic when... You know, I went to a place and transformed the reality in, in, through my mind. And, um, you know, when I did transform this so-called space or this uh, reality, I think what is important is that the viewers usually unclear what's fictional and what's fa fact and what's Roger Ballin and what's out there. This line is one of the lines that is about the other side of the wall. Well, you certainly are challenging us, taking us into a mindscape, as it were, yeah. or your theatre of the mind. Correct. And also challenging what is a photograph, because you really are playing, as you've developed into painting, drawing, installation, photography, all these aspects come together. Perhaps the camera is just one of the part of the media as opposed to the whole media. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the thing is, is look, I've, in the last couple of years, I've got involved with making installations at museums. I do etchings. I do videos. I do many other art forms, but I've always said that the core, even today, is still photography. But, you know, if you look at my pictures and you look at them carefully, you'll always, it'll always be clear to you if, if the picture has any impact that what you're looking at is a moment. I mean, I think the issue of the moment is the most important concept in photography, that the viewer sees some sort of eternal truth in, in that moment. And, this is about photography, even though there's drawing, there's paintings, there's sculptures, other things going on in the so-called photograph, it does culminate in, in a moment. And if you take the moment out of those pictures, then all you have is a, a document. And no, 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 I'm going to disagree with you there. All you have is a balanesque. Well, Vanessa Levenstein, The Syrian War Tellingly Told Through the Eyes of a Child. Dear World, A Syrian Girl's Story of War and Plea for Peace by Barna Alabed is a beautifully presented hardcover book with thick, creamy and peach pages. The inviting layout reflects a young girl's diary, a diary that should be filled with doodles of flowers and fairies, not the devastation of war. The front cover has an endorsement by none other than J.K. Rowling, and the young author has been compared to the likes of Anne Frank and Malala Yousafzai. Malala's response to the book was, Today I feel as though I'm watching the worst of our past repeat itself. When I look at Syria, I see the Rwandan genocide. When I read the desperate words of Barna Alabed in Aleppo, I see Anne Frank in Amsterdam. 
There's no denying the fact that Barna is a remarkable and brave child who has survived unspeakable horrors. She loses her school, her home, and her best friend. Yet this does not make her the literary equivalent of Anne Frank or political equivalent of Malala, who's the youngest Nobel Prize laureate. The book is narrated by both Barna and her mother Fatima, and their style is remarkably similar, to the point of which one does wonder whether the writing is that of an eight-year-old child or a ghostwriter. The book's story is greater than the writing, which is okay, because the truth is we have become immune to war, suffering, cruelty, but we do respond to poster children of war, such as the grim image of the three-year-old Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, who was washed up on the shore of a Turkish beach, and the tweets of eight-year-old Barna Alibeb, who poignantly posted, I need peace. When war is juxtaposed with innocence, we respond. Barna writes, did you know that the war in Syria has killed about 500,000 people? If you had no country, or your parents or children were going to be killed, what would you do? No child should ever have to ask that, and no child should ever have to hear Donald Trump say that he is willing to look Syrian refugee children in the face and tell them they cannot come to America. Amidst the horrors of war, Barna's mother writes, The human impulse for optimism is our greatest strength and our biggest liability. Barna herself never loses hope. May we hold on to that optimism. Well, the next uh, review we have is John Hanks, who's going to review the biography, the first part of the biography of Sir David Attenborough. John Hanks, David Attenborough. I've always been a great admirer of David Attenborough, undoubtedly one of the most celebrated and prolific broadcasters, television presenters, writers and naturalists. His style of presentation has captivated hundreds of thousands of people around the world with his 2006 narration of Planet Earth, the biggest wildlife documentary ever made, a superb encapsulation of his incredible technique. Unbelievably, with his 92nd birthday coming up in May of this year, he's still working on new presentations. One of them has been a series of five episodes just recently presented on BBC Radio 4, in which he reads, with his unmistakable voice, extracts from Adventures of a Young Naturalist, fascinating accounts of how he started his career back in 1956, when he had the opportunity to travel the world in search of rare animals for London Zoo's collection and to film the expeditions for the BBC. The resulting successful television series Zoo Quest was the start of an extraordinary successful life which has stimulated so many people to become passionate about the world's wild places, animals and plants. The book itself is not a new text, with the exception of the introduction, as it brings together reprinted editions of the first three books published 60 years ago a collection of delightfully readable and absorbing anecdotes of his initial voyages to Guiana, Indonesia and Paraguay, with some hair-raising encounters with the animals they set out to film, catch and transport back to London. These were expeditions characterised by roughing it in the extreme, in very remote and often perilous areas, with virtually no logistic support and woefully inadequate budgets. 
I still find it quite remarkable that David and his small team not only survived, but were able to capture unique footage and voice recordings of animals that would become the Attenborough trademark. His narratives of close encounters and positive interactions with tribal people who had previously had little or no contact with the Western world are presented with astonishing maturity for a young man in his late twenties, never patronising but in fact emphatically recognising cultural differences. He also demonstrated great patience and tolerance when dealing with recently appointed what I must call constipated bureaucrats who always managed to find it easy to place seemingly insurmountable obstacles in their way for every expedition, and all of whom had never understood the BBC's commitment to time management and punctuality. Those of us of that generation will never forget the six pips before the news, confirmation of Greenwich Mean Time, the first five of which lasted a tenth of a second each, while the final pip lasted half a second. The actual moment when the hour changed was at the very beginning of the last pip, a precision totally foreign to the people David Attenborough encountered. Although the original text was written 60 years ago, David Attenborough's wit and charm were already well developed, and I'm sure his many officiandos will recognise and welcome. The introduction, however, is dated May 2017, and it starts with an emphatic apology. He wrote... These days, zoos don't send out animal collectors on quest to bring them back alive, and quite right too. The natural world is under more than enough pressure as it is, without being robbed of its most beautiful, charismatic and rarest inhabitants." End quote. What I wish he had added is his recent outspoken concern about human population growth, which has increased from 2.5 billion when he started his career to over 7.5 billion today. For example, he recently said, and I quote again, the growth in human numbers is frightening. I've seen wildlife under mounting human pressure all over the world. It's not just human economy or technology. Behind every threat is the explosion in human numbers. I've never seen a problem that wouldn't be easier to solve with fewer people or harder and ultimately impossible with more." End quote coming from a man with his impeccable records for conservation of wildlife and his obvious passion and enthusiasm for the subject which the book has captured so well. Those are words that we should not ignore. The title again of this most enjoyable book is written by, and I should call him Sir David Attenborough, is Adventures of a Young Naturalist, The Zoo Quest Expeditions, and is published by Two Road Books in Great Britain. Right, uh, Mike Fitzjames. He's trying to scare us with some new crime novels. Hello again, Gorry. I have three interesting thrillers this month. My first selection is Light Touch by Stephen Leather. Working undercover is all about getting your target to trust you. Then you collect the evidence to bring them to justice. But what do you do when you find that an undercover cop has aligned herself with the international drug smuggler that she was meant to be targeting. When Lucy Kemp stops passing on intelligence about her target, MI5 send Dan Spider Shepherd to check that she is still on the straight and narrow. Now two lives are on the line, and Spider discovers that the real danger is closer to home than he imagined. Spider finds that his loyalties are being tested to the limit, and now an SAS killer 
is in London on a revenge mission, and only Spider is left to stop him. This was a masterful thriller. My second selection is The Susan Effect by Peter Hoek. Susan Svensson has an unusual talent. She is an expert at finding out secrets. People tend to feel compelled to confide in her, even confessing some of her innermost thoughts. All her life she has exploited this talent, but now her family is threatened and there is also a prison sentence hanging over her head. Susan gets a timely offer from a former government official. If she uses her powers one more time, they in turn will drop all outstanding charges. To get her life back, she must track down the last members of a secret think tank called the Future Committee and find out the details of their final report. Needless to say, there are powerful people determined that the report should never surface. This is a cliffhanger read. My final choice is The Word is Murder by Anthony Horowitz. This is yet another great read from Anthony Horowitz, and because his tale is composed in a fascinating and unusual construct, I will keep this review to basic facts and let you, the reader, do the hard work. We have a wealthy woman, strangled six hours after she arranged her funeral details. Next, a very private detective, uncovering secrets but hiding his own. And then, a writer drawn into a story he can't control. And finally, unexpected death, an unsolved mystery, and a trail of bloody clues. What more could you want? A great read. That's it for this month. The books were Light Touch by Stephen Leather, The Susan Effect by Peter Hoig, and The Word is Murder by Anthony Horowitz. Strap yourselves in and enjoy your reading.
That was Ken Higgins with Love Story. And now we have an interview recorded earlier with Gorry and Lyndall Gordon. Lyndall Gordon, let's uh, chat about your new biographical book, your eighth, I think. It's called Outsiders, Five Women Writers Who Changed the World. You left South Africa when you were... Sorry, can I go back to you left South Africa? Sorry. Okay. You left South Africa where you were born and bred to study in New York and moved from there to Oxford through the Rhodes Trust. You're a fellow of St Hilda's College in Oxford and the Royal Society of Literature. Your well-earned and highly respected awards, the British Academy Rose Mary... What's her name? Crawshay. What? Crawshay. Crawshay Prize, Cheltenham Prize for Literature, James Tate Black Prize for Biography. Lyndall, define outsiders for us and tell us who you chose as the five women writers who changed the world. Well, they're all kinds of outsiders, of course, but what I'm looking at are people who use their partners apartness from the world to be creative so that I've chosen five women and it was an opportunity in each case for her to find a voice of her own of course it was painful but and I've I've not excluded the difficulties of being on the outside of society in one way or another in Mary Shelley's case it was lifelong in George Eliot's case she almost unbelievably in mid-Victorian England made her way back into society. Uh, Olive Schreiner was not actually a social outcast, but she was um, under martial law during the Boer War. The British incarcerated her in a room. She could leave only once a day to get some water, and she was ostracized by everyone in this remote dorp, but uh, Hanover in the Northern Cape, where she, which was at the epicenter of the Boer War at, uh, in 19-1. So um, they all were literally outsiders. Virginia Woolf, the last I've treated, was an outsider in the sense that she suffered from bouts of mental illness. Um, I have chosen, I've mentioned Mary Shelley uh, uh, and, and George Eliot and Virginia Woolf, Olive Schreiner, and, and, and the fifth is Emily Bronte, who was temperamentally a natural outsider. And in fact, Lindell, your name, Lindell, uh, links you to Olive Schreiner. Yes, yes. Um, my mother called me Lindell, and it's more about my mother than about me. My mother grew up on the felt. Uh, in the Macquiland, and she deeply identified with Olive Schreiner as a lone voice uh, who wanted uh, a person who wanted to write and a woman who was very aware of women's needs for rights. Um, she was very aware of Olive Schreiner's aversion to getting in spending. She were, uh, and, and particularly her alertness to cruelty. And and that is a theme that has run all through this book. Uh, the, the 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 problem, particularly women and children face, of domestic violence, 
Um, and when Emily Bronte wrote about it in the middle of the 19th century, she was thought of as brutal. Uh, people didn't want to hear about domestic violence. They thought her unwomanly, and her sister Charlotte had to apologize for her and say she hardly knew what she was doing. But to go back to Olive Schreiner, um, I think that I admire so much the fact that she was in advance of her time a woman speaking for women I focused on her extraordinary book Woman and Labour not so well known as the story of an African farm but to me very important because she began this book when she didn't even have the right to a candle at night when she was in this little bare room at the edge of the dorp and she this volcanic voice pours out she was really an orator every bit as much as she was a novelist and she, and and her oratory was against thuggery against war that's the book that's the part of that's the story that really one reads with the crude dust in, yes, in one's throat that was, so. and also she was thrown out of her hotel and yes. then she had to go to that little That's room. That's right. It was surrounded by soldiers, or she had soldiers right... I she, didn't realise she had such a part in the Boer War. Yes, so I wanted to approach Olive Schreiner from this unusual viewpoint. Instead of approaching her through the African farm, which is, was, you know, made her name when she was a young woman, at the time the Boer War came, she was at the acme of her worldwide fame. And yet... There she was, all on her own, surrounded by British troops. 20,000 British troops rode into the area. Uh, the, the, the light horse, they were called. Can you imagine them in their pith helmets and their polished boots and all these horses needing fodder every day? Were they the ones that burnt down 30,000 homesteads? Yes. So she was most... Gory, you've come to the very core of it. She was most concerned about... Kitchener's concentration camps and the thousands of mostly women and children both black and white who were dying in their respective concentration camps and um, she was in touch with Emily Hobhouse who came out from England and went there with a train full of clothing and, and, uh, and, and food but of course it was futile given the scale Oh, yeah. And she was totally opposed to war, opposed to imperialism, opposed to Rhodes. Rhodes had knocked on her door in Mikey's Fontaine earlier in in eighteen nineties, uh, where she was living for for the sake of her asthma, really. But she was always very happy on the felt, and she shut her door to him. She totally disapproved of Rhodes. I think there are a lot of people here who might agree with that. So. And little on a lighter note, did any of these five extraordinary women have success with men? Well, three out of the five actually met extraordinarily enlightened men. Mary Shelley, it was improbable that she was then Mary Godwin at the age of 16. She would have met a great poet who really did want her to write. I went to look at the manuscript of Frankenstein, which is conveniently walking distance from where I live in the Bodleian Library, and you can see how Shelley worked on, a, on the manuscript, but not in an op obtrusive way. He did what a good copy editor would do, but he let her speak as she wished. Um, there was George Eliot, whose partner was George Henry Lewis, who, was, who both adored her, um, and she was very happy. He, he, she, I 
I'm not sure she was in love with him. She was passionate about someone else, even proposed to someone else. But he was a good rational choice, and he turned out to be a good lover. <laughs> and he was a, a good agent. And finally, there was Leonard Wolfe. Virginia Woolf married him. He was the son of a Jewish barrister in London, Sidney Woolf, whose watch words were, came from the Bible, from the prophet Micah, and I think they apply to Leonard Woolf, who used them in his autobiography. Th these words are, deal justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your Lord. Right. Uh, the next person we have is Melvin Minar. Melvin Minar, 50 people who stuffed up the world. How fortunate my book choice, stuck in C24J for the long, very long holiday flight as I was. Alexander Parker and Tim Richmond's enticingly titled 50 people who stuffed up the world. A perfect read for the plan, with a sweet, needed leg stretch breaks in between as each of the 50 villains led to the next alphabetically, from Idi Amin to, yes, Mark Zuckerman on page 309. In addition, there were Zafiro's delightful cartoons spliced in just to remind you that even though Parker and Richmond's Z conclusion is that the authors are bloody terrified of the state of the stuffed up world, we do need to take the pee sometimes to joke, laugh, and survive. Once you've cast aside arguments with Parker Richmond in your head about their choices, and their sometimes all too obvious staple, English public school libertarian proclivities, which they themselves half-heartedly accept as fuddy-duddy, there is much to ponder and to enjoy, the least of which is not the delightful savvy of the tight texts that at times run with the speed of audience-grabbing bar yarns. In one such tale, one poor chappie called Nick Politieri gets blamed for having, and I quote, made modern women's tennis unwatchable. The reason the famous tennis coach had inspired, if that's the right word, the god-awful grunting noise made these days by ladies with rackets on tennis courts. Monica Sellers is marked as an initiator, but writes Parker Richmond, quote, she wasn't a match for the worst offenders of today. Next to Sarapova, she is like a mouse roaring at the dinosaur. The Williams sisters in full cry are not far off, and the array of bizarre vociferations that their competitors have developed varies from the obnoxious to quite the extraordinary. As one example, the authors describe Michelle Larcher de Bricho's shout, loudest of them all, as the affected falling bomb whistle. If this kind of wit serves their beaded eyes well, observing as they do a hapless little one-song Justin Bieber, the unfortunate Twitter inventor Jack Dorsey, and of course the famous for being famous Kardashians, the authors are ever prodding the more serious issues let loose by social media and, to use a cliché, social dumbing down. The entry about Zuckerman is particularly scary. They weave arguments for knowledge of history throughout, and the book is of necessity perhaps dotted by historical evil members of the big man club. But they argue not so much about learning the lessons of history, the bashing of socialism is right up there, as to the very interest of the past, history as valuable curiosity. And for this, the book is full of delightful details, recapping on events and personalities that we nowadays leave to Google. Endnotes and a bibliography are designed to take the newly intrigued reader further. 
Perhaps the biggest plus of the book is that it rekindles the colorful tapestry of history we lived and live in. Stuck in seat 24J for some 10 hours and then some, enough time to finish the joyful read, one entry was of particular aptness. Not named as such, it was a committee decision. The essay is titled The Guy Who Killed Concord and tells about how research into contemporary supersonic international travel was set back when those 20 elegant super British French jets, symbolically named Concorde, were pulled from service in 2003. It's a gorgeous contemplation, really about a plane as metaphor for the human spirit of invention. Had I been on a Concorde as I read, I probably wouldn't have been able to finish Alexander Parker and Tim Richmond's holiday pleasure called 50 People Who Stuffed Up the World. Right, Cindy Moritz. Was it a coincidence or a subconscious decision that had me reading Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger, as the season of New Year's resolutions beckoned? It's the time of year when so many of us commit to eating less and moving more, so it seemed appropriate. But I also knew that it was more than a book about literal hunger. I'd been meaning to read it ever since a popular Australian online magazine publicly offended the author by publishing an interview which described in detail how they had to prepare for the visit of such a large woman. Gay later called this cruel and humiliating. The website's publisher, in an apology, said she should never have been so cavalier in revealing details about her interview with Roxane Gay. She admitted she made many mistakes, the first and worst of which was not understanding the difference between Roxane writing in her book, Hunger, about her experiences and difficulties of trying to navigate the world, and then assuming that because Roxane spoke about it, she could too. In a subsequent interview in the New York Times, Roxanne called the controversial event helpful in that people got to see what fat phobia looked like and a useful example of why she wrote the book. Roxanne Gay is an American writer, professor, editor and commentator. The memoir starts with her recollection of being a young Haitian-American girl living in suburbia as part of a warm, loving family and who is raped in an abandoned cabin in the woods by a group of boys that she knew. This sets the stage for a life of unsated hunger, of a body that was broken and hollowed out. She said, I was determined to fill the void, and food was what I used to build a shield around what little was left of me. Her observations on life as a morbidly obese woman for example, her choice of clothing, the way other people treat her, and her views on the pervasive message that thin equals good, are at the same time insightful and heartbreaking. Her writing is lucid and often irreverent. This is her way of making sense of what she calls her wildly undisciplined body. She knows that if she were to wake up thin tomorrow, it would not mean that she'd suddenly be happy and her problems would be solved. She wants to change how this world responds to how she looks because intellectually she knows that her body is not the real problem. Writing, and especially being connected online, helps her to be free of her life and body. It is also a way for her to try to escape the memories. I'm quite sure this memoir contributed to the environment that gave momentum to the Me Too movement that took off in the latter part of 2017. 
MeToo is a two-word hashtag that was used on social media to denounce sexual assault and harassment after sexual misconduct allegations, first against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein and then other high-profile men, became public, and subsequently as a way of indicating that it had also happened to you, that it was, in fact, rife. Hunger allows the reader to grapple with many issues that tie to the author's experience. Being fat in a world that reveres thinness, discovering your self-worth beyond that, and not least of all, the reality and ramifications of sexual assault and abuse. Gay rights. It is a powerful lie to equate thinness with self-worth. Clearly, this lie is damn convincing because the weight loss industry thrives. Women continue to try to bend themselves to societal will. Women continue to hunger, and so do I. This deeply personal memoir by one of the most admired voices of a generation is compelling and thought-provoking. It's a story that needed to be told. Thank you, Cindy. That's it then. It was really good to be with you. I was standing in for Gurry. It's Andrew Marshbanks from Wordsworth Books. Thanks. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR 101.3